Chapter Eight, Part Two of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. South, the story of Shackleton's last expedition, nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventeen, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Eight, Part Two. Escape from the Ice. The morning of April 11th was overcast and misty. There was a haze on the horizon, and daylight showed that the pack had closed round our berg, making it impossible in the heavy swell to launch the boats. We could see no sign of the water. Numerous whales and killers were blowing between the floes, and cape pigeons, petrels, and fulmers were circling round our berg. The scene from our camp as the daylight brightened was magnificent beyond description, though I must admit that we viewed it with anxiety. Heaving hills of pack and flow were sweeping towards us in long undulations, later to be broken here and there by the dark lines that indicated open water. As each swell lifted around our rapidly dissolving berg, it drove floe ice onto the ice foot, shearing off more of the top snow covering and reducing the size of our camp. When the floes retreated to attack again, the waters swirled over the ice foot, which was rapidly increasing in width. The launching of such boats under such conditions would be difficult. Time after time, so often that a track was formed, Worsley, Wilde, and I climbed to the highest point of the berg and stared out to the horizon in search of a break in the pack. After long hours had dragged past, Far away on the lift of the swell, there appeared a dark break in the tossing field of ice. Eons seemed to pass, so slowly it approached. I noticed enviously the calm, peaceful attitude of two seals, which lolled lazily on a rocking floe. They were at home, and had no reason for worry or cause for fear. If they had thought at all, I suppose they counted it an ideal day for a joyous journey on the tumbling ice. To us it was a day that seemed likely to lead to no more days. I do not think I had ever before felt the anxiety that belongs to leadership quite so keenly. When I looked down at the camp, to rest my eyes from the strain of watching the wide white expanse, broken by that one black ribbon of open water, I could see that my companions were waiting, with more than ordinary interest, to learn what I thought about it all. After one particularly heavy collision, someone shouted sharply, She has a crack in the middle. I jumped off the lookout station and ran to the place the men were examining. There was a crack, but investigation showed it to be a mere surface break in the snow, with no indication of a split in the berg itself. The carpenter mentioned calmly that earlier in the day he had actually gone adrift on a fragment of ice. He was standing near the edge of our camping ground, when the ice under his feet parted from the parent mass. A quick jump over the widening gap saved him. The hours dragged on. One of the anxieties in my mind was the possibility that we would be driven by the current through the eighty-mile gap between Clarence Island and Prince George Island into the open Atlantic. But slowly the open water came nearer, and at noon it had almost reached us. A long lane, narrow but navigable, 
stretched out to the southwest horizon. Our chance came a little later. We rushed our boats over the edge of the reeling berg, and swung them clear of the foot-ice as it rose beneath them. The James Caird was nearly capsized by a blow from below as the berg rolled away, but she got into deep water. We flung stores and gear aboard, and within a few minutes were away. The James Caird and Dudley Docker had good sails, and with a favourable breeze could make progress along the lane, with the rolling fields of ice on either side. The swell was heavy and spray was breaking over the ice-flows. An attempt to set a little rag of sail on the stack on wheels resulted in serious delay. The area of sail was too small to be of much assistance, and while men were engaged in this work, the boat drifted down towards the ice-flow, where her position was likely to be perilous. Seeing her plight, I sent the Dudley Docker back for her, and tied the James Caird up to a piece of ice. The Dudley Docker had to tow the Stancomb wheels, and the delay cost us two hours of valuable daylight. When I had the three boats together again, we continued down the lane, and soon saw a wider stretch of water to the west. It appeared to offer us release from the grip of its pack. At the head of an ice-tongue that nearly closed the gap, through which we might enter the open space, was a wave-worn berg shaped like some curious antediluvian monster, an icy Cerberus guarding the way. It had head and eyes, and rolled so heavily that it almost overturned. Its sides dipped in the sea, and as it rose again the water seemed to be streaming from its eyes, as though it were weeping at our escape from the clutch of its flows. This may seem fanciful to the reader, but the impression was real to us at the time. People living under civilized conditions, surrounded by nature's varied forms of life, and by all the familiar work of their own hands, may scarcely realize how quickly the mind, influenced by the eyes, responds to the unusual, and weaves about it curious imaginings, like the firelight fancies of our childhood days. We had lived long amid the ice, and we half unconsciously strove to see resemblances to human faces and living forms in the fantastic contours and massively uncouth shapes of berg and floe. At dusk we made fast to a heavy floe, each boat having its painter fastened to a separate hummock, in order to avoid collisions in the swell. We landed the blubber stove, boiled some water in order to provide hot milk, and served cold rations. I also landed the dome tents, and stripped the coverings from the hoops. Our experience of the previous day in the open sea had shown us that the tents must be packed tightly. The spray had dashed over the bows and turned to ice on the cloth. We had soon grown dangerously heavy. Other articles off our scanty equipment had to go that night. We were carrying only the things that had seemed essential, but we stripped now to the barest limit of safety. We had hoped for a quiet night, but presently we were forced to cast off, since pieces of loose ice began to work round the floe. Drift ice is always attracted to the lee side of a heavy floe, where it bumps and presses under the influence of the current. I had determined not to risk a repetition of the last night's experience, and so had not pulled the boats up. 
we spent the hours of darkness keeping an offing from the main line of pack under the lee of the smaller pieces. Constant rain and snow squalls blotted out the stars and soaked us through, and at times it was only by shouting to each other that we managed to keep the boats together. There was no sleep for anybody owing to the severe cold, and we dare not pull fast enough to keep ourselves warm, since we were unable to see more than a few yards ahead. Occasionally the ghostly shadows of silver, snow, and fulmar petrels flashed close to us, and all around we could hear the killers blowing, their short, sharp hisses, sounding like sudden escapes of steam. The killers were a source of anxiety, for a boat could easily have been capsized by one of them coming up to blow. They would throw aside in a nonchalant fashion pieces of ice much bigger than our boats when they rose to the surface, and we had an uneasy feeling that the white bottoms of the boats would look like ice from below. Shipwrecked mariners drifting in the Antarctic seas would be things not dreamed of in the killer's philosophy, and might appear on closer examination to be a tasty substitute for seal and penguin. We certainly regarded the killers with misgivings. Early in the morning of April 12th, the weather improved and the wind dropped. Dawn came with a clear sky, cold and fearless. I looked around at the faces of my companions in the James Caird, and saw pinched and drawn features. The strain was beginning to tell. Wilde sat at the rudder, with the same calm, confident expression that he would have worn under happier conditions. His steel-blue eyes looked out to the day ahead. All the people, though evidently suffering, were doing their best to be cheerful, and the prospect of a hot breakfast was inspiriting. I told all the boats that immediately we could find a suitable flow, the cooker would be started, and hot milk and borville would soon fix everybody up. Away we rode to the westward through open pack, flows of all shape and sizes on every side of us, and every man not engaged in pulling, looking eagerly for a suitable camping place. I could gauge the desire for food of the different members by the eagerness they displayed in pointing out to me the flows they considered exactly suited to our purpose. The temperature was about ten degrees Fahrenheit, and the Burberry suits of the rowers cracked as the men bent to the oars. I noticed little fragments of ice and frost falling from arms and bodies. At eight o'clock a decent flow appeared ahead, and we pulled up to it. The galley was landed, and soon the welcome steam rose from the cooking food, as the blubber stove flared and smoked. Never did a cook work under more anxious scrutiny. Worsley, Crean, and I stayed in our respective boats, to keep them steady and prevent collisions with the flow, since the swell was still running strong. But the other men were able to stretch their cramped limbs, and run to and fro, in the kitchen, as somebody put it. The sun was now rising gloriously. The Burberry suits were drying, and the ice was melting off our beards. The steaming food gave us new vigour, and within three-quarters of an hour we were off again to the west, with all sails set. We had given an additional sail to the Stancombe Wills, and she was able to keep up pretty well. We could see that we were on the true pack-edge, with the blue rolling sea, just outside the fringe of ice to the north. 
white-capped waves vied with the glittering flows in the setting of blue water, and countless seals basked and rolled on every piece of ice big enough to form a raft. We had been making westward with oars and sails since April ninth, and fair easterly winds had prevailed. Hopes were running high as to the noon observation for position. The optimists thought that we had done sixty miles towards our goal, and the most cautious guess gave us at least thirty miles. The bright sunshine and the brilliant scene around us may have influenced our anticipations. As noon approached, I saw Worsley, as navigating officer, balancing himself on the gunwale of the Dudley Docker, with his arm around the mast, ready to snap the sun. He got his observation, and we waited eagerly while he worked out the sight. Then the Dudley Docker ranged up alongside the James Cayard, and I jumped into Worsley's boat, in order to see the result. It was a grievous disappointment. Instead of making a good run to the westward, we had made a big drift to the south-east. We were actually thirty miles to the east of the position we had occupied, when we had left the flow on the ninth. It had been noted by sealers operating in this area that there are often heavy sets to the east in the Bulgeic Straits, and no doubt it was one of these sets that we had experienced. The originating cause would be a northwesterly gale off Cape Horn, producing the swell that had already caused us so much trouble. After a whispered consultation with Worsley and Wilde, I announced that we had not made as much progress as we had expected but I did not inform the hands of our retrograde movement. The question of our course now demanded further consideration. Deception Island seemed to be beyond our reach. The wind was foul for Elephant Island, and as the sea was clear to the southwest, I discussed with Worsley and Wilde the advisability of proceeding to Hope Bay, on the mainland of the Antarctic continent, now only eighty miles distant. Elephant Island was the nearest land, but it lay outside the main body of pack, and even if the wind had been fair, we would have hesitated at the particular time to face the high sea that was running in the open. We laid a course roughly for Hope Bay, and the boats moved on again. I gave Worsley a line for a berg ahead, and told him, if possible, to make fast before darkness set in. This was about three o'clock in the afternoon. We had set sail, and as the Stancombe Wills could not keep up with the other two boats, I took her in tow, not being anxious to repeat the experience of the day we left the reeling berg. The Dudley Docker went ahead, but came beating down towards us at dusk. Worsley had been close to the berg, and he reported that it was unapproachable. It was rolling in the swell and displaying an ugly ice-foot. The news was bad. In the failing light we turned towards a line of pack, and found it so tossed and churned by the sea, that no fragment remained big enough to give us anchorage and shelter. Two miles away we could see a larger piece of ice, and to it we managed, after some trouble, to secure the boats. I brought my boat bow onto the floe, whilst Howe, with the painter in his hand, stood ready to jump. Standing up to watch our chance, while the oars were held ready to back the moment Hal made his leap, I could see that there would be no possibility of getting the galley ashore that night. Hal just managed to get a footing on the edge of the floe, 
and then made the painter fast to a hummock. The other two boats were fastened alongside the James Cayard. They could not lie astern of us in a line, since cakes of ice came drifting round the floe and gathered under its lee. As it was, we spent the next two hours poling off the drifting ice that surged towards us. The blubber stove could not be used, so we started the primus lamps. There was a rough and choppy sea, and the Dudley Dogger could not get her primus under way, something being adrift. The men in that boat had to wait until the cook on the James Cayard had boiled up the first pot of milk. The boats were bumping so heavily that I had to slack away the painter of the stack and wheels and put her astern. Much ice was coming round the floe and had to be poled off. Then the Dudley Docker, being the heavier boat, began to damage the James Cayard, and I slacked the Dudley Docker away. The James Caird remained moored to the ice, with the Dudley Docker and the Stackham Wills in line behind her. The darkness had become complete, and we strained our eye to see the fragments of ice that threatened us. Presently we thought we saw a great berg bearing down upon us, its form outlined against the sky. But this startling spectacle resolved itself into a low-lying cloud in front of the rising moon. The moon appeared in a clear sky. The wind shifted to the south-east as the light improved, and drove the boat's broadside on towards the jagged edge of the floe. We had to cut the painter off the James Cayard and pull her off, thus losing much valuable rope. There was no time to cast off. Then we pushed away from the floe, and all night long we lay in the open, freezing sea. The Dudley Docker now ahead, the James Cayard astern of her and the Stackham wheels third in the line. The boats were attached to one another by their painters. Most of the time the Dudley Docker kept the James Cayard and the Stackham wheels up to the swell, and the men who were rowing were in better press than those in the other boats, waiting inactive for the dawn. The temperature was down to four degrees below zero, and a film of ice formed on the surface of the sea. When we were not on watch, we lay in each other's arms for warmth. Our frozen suits thawed where our bodies met, and as the slightest movement exposed these comparatively warm spots to the biting air, we clung motionless, whispering each to his companions our hopes and thoughts. Occasionally, from an almost clear sky, came snow showers, falling silently on the sea, and laying a thin shroud of white over our bodies and our boats. The dawn of April 13th came clear and bright, with occasional passing clouds. Most of the men were now looking seriously worn and strained. Their lips were cracked, and their eyes and eyelids showed red in their salt-encrusted faces. The beards of even the younger men might have been those of Patriarch, for the frost and salt spray had made them white. I called the Dudley Docker alongside, and found the condition of the people there was no better than in the James Cayard. Obviously we must make land quickly, and I decided to run for Elephant Island. The wind had shifted fair for that rocky isle, then about one hundred miles away, and the pack that separated us from Hope Bay had closed up during the night from the south. At six p.m. we made a distribution of stores among the three boats, in view of the possibility of their being separated. 
the preparation of a hot breakfast was out of the question. The breeze was strong, and the sea was running high in the loose pack around us. We had a cold meal, and I gave orders that all hands might eat as much as they pleased, this concession being due partly to a realisation that we would have to jettison some of our stores when we reached the open sea in order to lighten the boats. I hoped, moreover, that a full meal of cold rations would compensate to some extent for the lack of warm food and shelter. Unfortunately, some of the men were unable to take advantage of the extra food owing to seasickness. Poor fellows! It was bad enough to be huddled in the deeply laden, spray-swept boats, frost-bitten and half-frozen, without having the pangs of seasickness added to their list of woes. But some smiles were caused, even then, by the plight of one man, who had a habit of accumulating bits of food against the day of starvation that he always seemed to think was at hand, and who was condemned now to watch impotently, while hungry comrades with undisturbed stomachs made biscuits, rations, and sugar disappear with extraordinary rapidity. We ran before the wind through the loose pack, a man in the bow of each boat trying to pull off with a broken oar the lumps of ice that could not be avoided. I regarded speed as essential. Sometimes collisions were not averted. The James Caird was in the lead, where she bore the brunt of the encounter with lurking fragments, and she was hauled above the waterline by a sharp spur of ice. But this mishap did not stay us. Later the wind became stronger, and we had to reef sails, so as not to strike the ice too heavily. The Dudley Docker came next to the James Caird, and the Stancombe Wheels followed. I had given orders that the boat should keep thirty or forty yards apart, so as to reduce the danger of a collision if one boat was checked by the ice. The pack was thinning, and we came to occasional open areas where thin ice had formed during the night. When we encountered this new ice, we had to shake the reef out of the sails, in order to force a way through. Outside of the pack the wind must have been of hurricane force. Thousands of small dead fish were to be seen, killed probably by a cold current and the heavy weather. They floated in the water and lay on the ice, where they had been cast by the waves. The petrels and scargulls were swooping down and picking them up like sardines off toast. We made our way through the lanes till, at noon, we were suddenly spewed out of the pack into the open ocean. Dark blue and sapphire green ran the seas. Our sails were soon up, and with a fair wind we moved over the waves, like three Viking ships, on the quest of a lost Atlantis. With the sheet well out and the sun shining bright above, we enjoyed for a few hours a sense of the freedom and magic of the sea, compensating us for pain and trouble in the days that had passed. At last we were free from the ice, in water that our boats could navigate. Thoughts of home, stifled by the deadening weight of anxious days and nights, came to birth once more, and the difficulties it had still to be overcome dwindled in fancy almost to nothing. During the afternoon we had to take a second reef in the sails, for the wind freshened, and the deeply laden boats were shipping much water and steering badly in the rising sea. I had laid the course for Elephant Island, and we were making good progress. 
the Dudley Docker ran down to me at dusk, and Worsley suggested that we should stand on all night. But already the Stancombe Wheels was barely discernible among the rollers in the gathering dusk, and I decided that it would be safer to heave to and wait for the daylight. It would never have done for the boats to have become separated from one another during the night. The party must be kept together, and, moreover, I thought it possible that we might overrun our goal in the darkness and not be able to return. So we made a sea-anchor of oars and hove to, the Dudley Docker in the lead, since she had the longest painter. The James Caird swung astern of the Dudley Docker, and the Stancombe wheels again had the third place. We ate a cold meal and did what little we could to make things comfortable for the hours of darkness. Rest was not for us. During the greater part of the night the sprays broke over the boats and froze in masses of ice, especially at the stern and bows. This ice had to be broken away in order to prevent the boats growing too heavy. The temperature was below zero, and the wind penetrated our clothes and chilled us almost unbearably. I doubted if all the men would survive that night. One of our troubles was lack of water. We had emerged so suddenly from the pack into the open sea, that we had not had time to take aboard ice for melting in the cookers, and without ice we could not have hot food. The Dudley Dogger had one lump of ice weighing about ten pounds, and this was shared out among all hands. We sucked small pieces, and got a little relief from thirst engendered by the salt spray, but at the same time we reduced our bodily heat. The condition of most of the men was pitiable. All of us had swollen mouths, and we could hardly touch the food. I longed intensely for the dawn. I called out to the other boats at intervals during the night, asking how things were with them. The men always managed to reply cheerfully. One of the people on the stack on Will shouted, "'We are doing all right, but I would like some dry mitts.' The jest brought a smile to cracked lips. He might as well have asked for the moon. The only dry things aboard the boats were swollen mouths and burning tongues. Thirst is one of the troubles that confront the traveller in polar regions. Ice may be plentiful on every hand, but it does not become drinkable until it is melted, and the amount that may be dissolved in the mouth is limited. We had been thirsty during the heavy days of pulling in the pack and our condition was aggravated quickly by the salt spray. Our sleeping-bags would have given us some warmth, but they were not within our reach. They were packed under the tents in the bows, where a mail-like coating of ice enclosed them, and we were so cramped that we could not pull them out. End of chapter 8, part 2